focus on headline. All right, let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, uh, joining us in the studio, we have our Tuesday reporters back in the studio once again. We're talking about Kwon Suan, Cheji Hee. Guys, welcome back. Good evening. Well, what's so funny? <laughs> I don't understand what's so funny. Everything I say is funny, huh? Uh, nevertheless, uh, we're going to jump right into the top story today. It did happen earlier today. Are we surprised? No, considering all the provocation that we've been seeing uh, with North Korea seriously uh, increasing the number of missile provocation. Uh, we saw a number of short-range ballistic missiles being test-fired last week. Uh, on this Tuesday, we lo- saw intermediate-range ballistic missile being fired. Uh, this is just the uh, already the fifth launch of missiles in just 10 days. So I'll uh, start us off with this. Give us the latest updates. Sure. Our first story is not funny at all. It seems that North Korea basically every two days on average is now firing its missiles. Uh, it was the first time in around eight months that it conducted an, an IRBM launch, as you said, SJ, an intermediate-range ballistic missile this Tuesday. And uh, the last one was conducted on January 30th. According to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, South Korea's military detected a single intermediate-range ballistic missile in Tagangdo province at 7 23 a.m. It flew eastward over Japan and, according to Japanese authorities, uh, earlier fell into the Pacific waters after being around 22 minutes in the air. Now, this happened uh, a little past 6 p.m. Washington time. Now, the missile flew between 4,500 and 4,600 kilometers to a maximum altitude of around 970 kilometers. Details are still being analyzed, but the missile is assumed to be a Hwasong-12, similar as the one launched earlier this year. And uh, it's actually the first time in five years that a North Korean missile flew over Japan. In September 2017, it was also a Hwasong-12 that flew over Japan and landed into waters east of Hokkaido. Now, Tuesday's launch, if it took a different trajectory, it could hit as far as the U.S. island of Guam. Now, uh, as you mentioned before, SJ, this is the fifth projectile launch in 10 days. The North's tested missiles on the 24th, 28th, and 29th of September, and on October 1st, as well as today, October 4th. And this year, that's already 21 rounds of ballistic missile launches and two cruise missile launches. And it's also the ninth launch since the inauguration of South Korea's President Yoon Suk-yeol. So, uh, so far, we've seen uh, in the past uh, 10 days or so, again, uh, a wave of short-range ballistic missiles. Uh, Now we're seeing intermediate ballistic missile, uh, whether or not the next uh, provocation is going to be an intercontinental ballistic missile, which, of course, is going to be a big problem in the United States. They'll go, uh, you know, we don't want the ballistic missiles to be test-fired by North Korea. Short-range, all right, not bad. Uh, Intermediate ballistic missile, uh, okay, we're not a big fan of it, but... 
uh, it's really the intercontinental uh, ballistic missiles that uh, they're very concerned with. That, of course, as we know, has the range to hit uh, one of the uh, 48 uh, continental uh, states in the United States. And so uh, we'll keep a close eye on this. But of course, the big issue with this is the fact that this ballistic missile uh, flew over Japan. Uh, we saw the presidential office strongly condemning North Korea's missile firing. Uh, they did vow to strengthen the means to deter such provocations further. But of course, Japan also strongly criticizing the missile that was fired without any warning, prompting evacuation warnings. Patrick Pierzer uh, chiming on a live YouTube saying North Korea's ballistic missile flying, flying over Japan. All Japanese had to go to the basement and wait. We're going to talk about this because it did prompt evacuation warnings. Just like you said, Patrick, uh, Jihee, you have more on this. Right. So first of all, the National Security Council held a meeting attended by President Yoon Seok-yeol and strongly condemned North Korea's uh, latest launch of an intermediate range ballistic missile. And in a press release following the meeting presided over by National Security Advisor Kim Sung-han, the committee referred to the recent launch as a clear violation of UN Security Council resolutions and a serious provocation threatening the peace on the Korean Peninsula and beyond. Uh, the NSC also emphasized that such continued provocations cannot be tolerated and said that the participants agreed to seek various ways to strengthen their deterrence with the U.S., Japan, and the international community, uh, including reinforcing the sanctions on the North. And it also said President Yoon noted that North Korea's provocation clearly violated uh, the UN's universal principles as well as rules and ordered a strict response as well as the pursuit of corresponding measures in cooperation with the United States and the international community. Uh, Yoon also emphasized that the North's nuclear and missile provocations will only further strengthen the security cooperation within and outside the region, including with the U.S. and Japan, and uh, directed to bolster the U.S. extended deterrence pledge and the cooperation level amongst the South, the U.S. and Japan in response to the North's uh, nuclear threats. Meanwhile, the North's latest ballistic missile was the first launch in five years over Japan, and this came just days after launching missiles toward the East Sea. And the launch, of course, prompted an immediate backlash from Tokyo. And uh, Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida strongly condemned the launch and told reporters that North Korea's recent ballistic missile launches were, quote-unquote, outrageous. And the Japanese government urged residents of Hokkaido and Aomori uh, Prefecture to take shelter in advance and also holding phone calls with his U.S. counterpart, Antony Blinken. Uh, Japanese Foreign Minister Yoshimasa Hayashi said they agreed to closely cooperate toward the complete denuclearization of North Korea. And uh, he also held phone talks with his South Korean counterpart, Park Jin, promising to maintain close bilateral as well as trilateral cooperation in response to the North's threats. Uh, meanwhile, ministers Park Jin and Antony Blinken also held talks over the phone uh, where they emphasized that the North's provocation cannot be overlooked and agreed to strengthen cooperation as well as communication between the two countries. If my memory serves me correct, uh, this is not the first time that North Korea actually test-fired a uh, ballistic missile over 
uh, Japan. I think it did happen before as mm-hmm. well. But you could imagine uh, how scary it would be for the residents and the citizens exactly. of Japan uh, who are in that range. So uh, it's the first in five years. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So I do remember the last time it did, it did happen. I was, you know, obviously a lot of. Uh, concerns and criticism from uh, Japan on that front. Uh, Patrick says uh, 4,500 kilometers, that's a long-range ballistic missile or mm-hmm. intercontinental ballistic missiles, but I just looked it up. Uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles or long-range ballistic missiles, uh, if it's over 5,500 kilometers, it's considered uh, long-range ballistic missiles. So if it's under 5,500, it's not considered a long-range ballistic missile. Uh, the military officials are also calling it intermediate, uh, intermediate range ballistic missiles. So uh, yeah, there you have it. Uh, nevertheless, uh, with all this, North Korea uh, on this Tuesday reported has not responded to a daily phone call between the two Koreas via the inter-Korean liaison line. Uh, so you got the details of this. Yes, I do. And it seems actually like a trivial matter because just an hour ago, we heard that the two sides did speak over the phone at 5 p.m. So the line seems to have been normalized if there was a problem with it, that is. So going back to earlier in the day, South Korea's unification ministry said this Tuesday that there was no phone conversation between Seoul and Pyongyang, uh, which they usually hold on a daily basis two times. So that was earlier in the day. Uh, An official said the North had not answered an opening call through an inter-Korean liaison communication line as of 9 a.m., while the military hotline was in normal operation. So at 9 a.m. it did not happen, but at 5 p.m. their closing call did occur. And uh, But earlier in the day, there were some kind of concerns regarding uh, North Korea not picking up because it just came hours after the North's missile launch. Authorities uh, said that they were trying to find the reason for this, whether it could be a technical problem because glitches do happen from time to time. For instance, in June, heavy rain led to a technical problem. Uh, So on the question on whether North Korea might have intentionally not picked up a ministry official uh, at the Unification Ministry in Seoul said that uh, right now it's just important to normalize the line and uh, yes, not to make predictions. But uh, the inter-Korean hotline has been cut off and restored a number of times in the past uh, due to North Korea. For instance, it was restored in July 2021, around a year after the North had suspended the channel in protest against anti-Pyongyang leaflet campaigns in South Korea. And then again, it cut it off in October and it was later restored again. Uh, Even we know that the Joint Liaison Office was blown up two years ago. So we cannot rule out in these cases that North Korea is not picking up as a mere technical issue. But as I said, uh, they did pick up at 5 p.m. So I think this time it was not a big issue. Yeah, I just they never know what what North Korea is thinking or what they're what they're trying to convey here because there's 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 always a lack of dialogue and uh, they just don't really like to express themselves uh, when it comes to this. But this is definitely very very concerning here. Uh, but. Uh, Again, with all this, we had all these uh, short-range ballistic missiles. Uh, Patrick, you know, you continue to say ICBM is eight thousand kilometers or more, but I don't. I, I keep seeing a lot of uh, basically all my researchers are showing that ICBMs are greater than five thousand five hundred kilometers. So uh, we're going to put it at that. And also, the Joint Chiefs of Staff said it's inter. I mean, we're not we're not making this up. It's it's, it's they said it's an intermediate range ballistic missile. Then we're going to say it's an intermediate uh, range ballistic missile here. Uh, but 
with all this right now, we have the uh, the short-range ballistic missiles that we saw last week. Now we have the intermediate-range ballistic missiles. A lot of eyes on North Korea's next possible military action uh, following all these uh, provocations. But this, of course, might indicate that it's a gradual escalation of their provocation. Uh, what's next? Could it be an intercontinental ballistic missile? Or are they going to skip right to their seventh nuclear test? There are some experts who are speculating that nuclear test is going to be the next one that's going to happen at the end of this month. Uh, let's get more takes on this. Uh, Jihee, you have more on this. Uh, yes, that's right. So many eyes, uh, like you said, are on North Korea's next possible actions. And this recent firing of an IRBM over Japan, uh, like I said, was its first uh, in eight months. And the missile flew, like we said, some 4,500 kilometers past Japan. And although the specifics are being verified through a detailed analysis conducted by intelligence authorities of South Korea and the U.S., uh, it puts Guam a U.S. territory within range, and it reminds the international community that it poses threats far beyond uh, the Korean peninsula. And the North launched one short-range ballistic missile on September 25th, if we recall, and then two last Wednesday and another two the following day and two on Saturday. Uh, and the series of the North's missile launches raised questions over the actual efficacy of the deterrence efforts made by South Korea and the U.S. And in fact, the Allies had recently ramped up their efforts on deterrence, including uh, resuming the extended deterrence strategy and consultation group session last month, which was halted for nearly five years. And analysts said the North's recent provocations indicate it has been doubling down on its major weapons development schemes, uh, including developing a tactical nuclear warhead, uh, which is mountable on short-range ballistic missiles. And also, according to experts, the North's next step in provocation will be a nuclear test, as we have been all been concerned about. And the regime seems to be pushing ahead with its uh, nuclear actions that have been hindered due to the COVID-19 outbreak within the country. And then experts also say the fact that North Korea is firing stronger missiles after joint military exercises that have been conducted between the South and the U.S. have ended indicate that the regime is going towards the procurement of a, uh, its nuclear capabilities. And pundits also expect the timing of the nuclear test to come within the end of this month. That's when the Chinese Communist Party's National Congress will end. And then between beginning of the U.S. U.S. midterm elections, which is slated for early next month. And so this period is expected to have the best political influence from the perspective of the North, as uh, North Korea wishes to consider China's significant national event, uh, and it doesn't want to hinder that event. Mm. And But then at the same time, it also wants to affect the midterm elections of the U.S., uh, however, some experts uh, argue that the North may watch until the end of the midterm elections and decide when to test its nuclear capabilities after seeing the results of these elections. Yeah, one thing's for sure. This latest uh, uh, intermediate ballistic, intermediate uh, range ballistic missile, why they shot it over Japan. If you remember, Japan also got involved with the joint uh, naval exercises with uh, South Korea and the United States. So... 
you know, this was their message towards Japan. Obviously, it was it was a very dangerous one. Anytime you, you know, fired over a certain country, whether or not you weren't aiming for the country specifically and just uh, aiming for the ocean still, uh, it was a very dangerous uh, decision made by North Korea. But it was definitely intended for Japan, for them taking part in this uh, naval exercise with, the, uh, with South Korea and the United States as well. Uh, in the meantime, South Korea, U.S. Combined Forces Command uh, expected to complete its relocation of its headquarters by the end of this month. Uh, so well, let's get more on this. Yes, so, so that's a relocation from Seoul to Pyeongtaek. According to Seoul's Defense Ministry this Tuesday, the South Korea-U.S. Combined Forces Command will start to move from the Yongsan base, uh, which is roughly the center of uh, in downtown Seoul, that base to the key U.S. military base 70 kilometers south of the capital in Pyeongtaek and to get the relocation done by the end of the month. So this moving from Yongsan happens for the first time in 44 years. So since 1978, it's a big relocation. And this has been agreed upon between the defense ministries of South Korea and the U.S. back in 2019, June. And then later, uh, last year in December, during a meeting, they agreed that this is going to happen this year. The defense ministry in Seoul said today that through this relocation, the CFC plans to establish an even, quote, stronger combined defense system based on a strengthened alliance spirit and operational efficiency in Pyeongtaek, the new cradle of the alliance. Now, a large part of personnel, facilities and equipment has already been moved and uh, the construction of the CFC headquarters building has been completed completed last month, it cost some 32.2 billion won or 22.4 million U.S. dollars roughly. And uh, the CFC, meanwhile, is led by a four-star U.S. general. But if a conditions-based transfer of wartime operational control from Washington to Seoul is realized, that this is what South Korea is envisioning, mm. then a South Korean general will lead the command and the U.S. takes a supporting role. Yeah, this is something that was uh, mentioned uh, even during uh, the Trump administration. It just never came about being realized Popcorn, here. Yeah. yeah, but uh, I'm just going to say, I'm going to miss going to Yongsan base uh, <laughs> if, if you have past there you can go to the, some of the there's a uh, restaurant there that you can check out it's a great American food that I was there before once when uh, I, I had a kind of school exchange with my German school mm. to the American school inside the base oh yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. yeah it was really great to see the big sized burger sets for instance the the coke all of it was like one liter and the the fries were like double the size yeah, so of what they, i knew <laughs> they have like fast food chains inside but yeah. they like have everything like america yeah it was amazing yeah so there's like a fast food chain uh, chicken restaurant that's also located here in south korea mm. but it just tastes completely different mm. the chickens are like dinosaur chicken <laughs> sizes and it's it's huge and it's delicious but uh, i'm certainly gonna uh, miss uh, going to that uh, base to be honest with you uh guys uh, let's just get back on track here uh talk about domestic politics as we uh, briefly talked about this uh, in yesterday's program the national assembly beginning its uh, parliamentary audit today uh this is the first of its kind since the UN administration kicked off uh while the ruling in opposition parties uh, confrontation regarding the matter is escalating uh the foreign ministry announced its pledge 
Magistrate's policy report this afternoon as well. Uh, Chi, let's get the details of this. Sure. So the parliamentary audits, uh, which is the first such scrutiny of the Yoon Seok-yeol administration, five months since it took office, will be conducted on 783 government organizations, and it began just today. Uh, the audits by 14 standing committees will continue through the 24th of this month. Uh, so it's going to be about three weeks. And the audit session came just hours after the North fired an intermediate range ballistic missile this morning. Uh, amid heightened concerns that North Korea could conduct a nuclear test in the coming weeks, the foreign ministry pledged efforts to create conditions that will give the North no other option but to give up its nuclear weapons. Now, when the audits against the foreign ministry began this morning, the opposing Democratic Party had requested the resigning of Minister Park Jin. Uh, there was a huge controversy over that. And so amidst confrontation between the ruling and opposing parties, the audit had in fact been suspended just 30 minutes after proceeding this morning and was resumed a little after 2 p.m. And so in a policy uh, report to a parliamentary audit, uh, this was documented by the foreign ministry, and the ministry reaffirmed its commitment to North Korea's nuclear threat, uh, dissuade its nuclear development, and take a comprehensive and balanced approach toward denuclearization through dialogue and diplomacy. And the ministry also vowed to continue efforts to resolve pending issues and restore a relationship based on trust by reviving the so-called shuttle diplomacy. Also, uh, with uh, they have the National Assembly audit official from the uh, the government, the ruling People Power Party got together yesterday on uh, Monday, despite the fact that it was a national uh, holiday there. Uh, this was to discuss plans on restructuring the central government. So, uh, so let's get the updates on that. Right. Uh, in other words, it's the government restructuring plan. The major changes the UN administration is envisioning is setting up an independent government agency for overseas. Koreans. It would be an upgraded version of the existing Overseas Koreans Foundation that's currently operated by the foreign ministry. Some 7.3 million Korean residents abroad are to be provided with so-called one-stop government services. So, for instance, uh, passport issuances and tax services. Uh, and uh, President Yoon Seok-yeol actually, during his recent trip to New York, had said that the government will do its best to make sure that Koreans uh, overseas, especially in the American society, can enjoy essential rights. And uh, yes, uh, setting up a space agency is also part of the government's so-called Korean version of NASA plan. Uh, now, that might involve also a possible relocation of those working in the space industry, uh, to be more exact, at the Korea Aerospace Research Institute. So they might have to move from Daejeon to Gyeongsangnam-do province or Jeollanam-do province. And also, the this is one that major thing that they want to change, uh, the abolishment of the gender and family ministry. Right. Uh, you know, it's been one of the most controversial pledges that President Yoon had made during his presidential campaign. Uh, for a while, there were actually no talks about it, but now it look, looks like the government is pushing with their initial plan. Now, while getting rid of the gender ministry, the government and the PPP aim to establish a lower level agency under the Ministry of Health and Welfare to handle the policies that were under the Ministry of Gender Equality and Family. 
Interesting stuff here. Uh, it's also uh, interesting with the whole uh, the, was it the Korean version of NASA mm-hmm. plan. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, the government also announced a series of uh, solutions to tackle the issue of late night taxi shortages. Uh, this is something that. Um, I guess the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, because uh, with all the restrictions in place before uh, it was all lifted, I mean, these taxi drivers were basically quitting. They're saying, we don't have any jobs. And so they picked up jobs as uh, delivery workers and so forth. And so that still kept on going, uh, despite the fact that we now don't have any curfews in place. And if you have ever tried to get the cab late at night, it's pretty tough here. Uh, The Ministry of Land, Infrastructure and Transport today uh, revealing a set of new measures to support the livelihoods of taxi drivers. Uh, Gee, what what do they say here? Right, so the government said that it will raise late-night taxi hailing fees to 5,001, which is about 3.5 U.S. dollars. Uh, And this will benefit the taxi drivers and not the platform companies. And uh, the plan aims to bring back drivers who left the industry during the pandemic curfew, uh, according to the South Korean Transport Ministry. Uh, the plan, of course, includes a 20 to 40 percent premium in fares. Uh, it's also being considered to taxi operating from 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. And the plan came after the government's analysis on the ongoing taxi shortage issue uh, that found that an insufficient number of drivers to operate taxis is the main cause behind the shortage issue. Uh, And many taxi drivers left in the past three years when the country implemented a series of social distancing measures, uh, including the taxi curfew. And if we take a look at the numbers in detail, the number of corporate taxi drivers nationwide has decreased to 74,000 from the previous 102,000, which was the number before the pandemic. Uh, And so this is a over 30 percent, almost 30 percent decrease in the number of taxi drivers. And in Seoul alone, uh, the number of corporate taxi drivers has decreased to 21,000 from 31,000. So, of course, uh, this made hailing a taxi extremely difficult at night. And other measures include abolishing the taxi operation day limiting system, which was implemented back in 1973 to control the taxi supply, and also to speed up the increase in the number of corporate taxi drivers. The government is allowing people to start working as drivers uh, as soon as they provide a clean criminal record. Uh, And so that means the regulation that was put in uh, before has been eased. And corporate taxi drivers will also be able to work part-time, including on Friday and Saturday nights only. And uh, regarding the matter, Transport Minister Won Hiryong said that the government would also consider allowing midnight operations of taxi-hailing businesses such as Uber and Tata that have been banned for years amid strong resistance from taxi operators. Yeah, the biggest problem with uh, taxi fares is that, I mean, over the the 13 years that I've lived in uh, Korea so far, they've increased uh, the taxi rate uh, a number of times. Uh, And... I'm all for increasing the tax rate if it's going to benefit the drivers. But the biggest controversy is that, as you know, if you're a corporate taxi driver, if you work for a certain company, you have to pay a a set amount. I don't know how much they have to give now, but back like 10 years ago, for instance, uh, the drivers had to pay a daily fee of something like 120,000 Korean won to the company. And uh, whatever's remaining is what they pay Mm -hmm. for, uh, what they receive. Uh, also, they have to, you know, pay for uh, the LPG gas and stuff like that. They only get like a half tank 
uh, and stuff. So every time they increase the fare, the company also takes a bigger chunk out of it. Yeah. And so that's the, that was the biggest problem, right? Uh, but if they can say the Ministry of Land, Infrastructure and Transport can say that they'll increase the fare, but the company will not take a, another chunk of that. And it just it's a win situation uh, for win win situation, I guess, for people that are seeking the taxis and uh, the taxi drivers. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, this is uh, uh, good news here. Uh, nevertheless, I will keep a close eye on that. Now, let's move on to the economy here. We've been watching the uh, the stock markets very uh, carefully in the recent uh, months here. Uh, has has been uh, tanking quite a bit. It's a bear market right now. So shares uh, made a quite a strong rebound on this Tuesday. So uh, what kind of figures are we looking at here? So. Uh Right. Uh, South Korean stocks indeed uh, accomplished a strong rebound uh, from what was an over a two-year low. That would be Friday because markets didn't open on Monday as it was National Foundation Mm Day. Uh, The benchmark Cosby added 53.89 points or 2.5%, ending at 2,209.38. The market opened higher on U.S. gains. In particular, tech shares led the gains in the market today. Now, last week, we saw local stocks heavily impacted after foreign investors went on a selling spree on the heels of the strengthening dollar due to the U.S. Fed's rate hike. Uh, If I just remind you now, last week, the Seoul index tumbled to 2,155.49, which was the lowest level since July 2020. Uh, and uh, also, meanwhile, today the local currency ended at 1,426.51 against the U.S. dollar, which is up 3.71 from the previous session's close. So again, that would be Thursday. Meanwhile, Finance Minister Chu Kyung-ho vowed this Tuesday the government will preemptively implement appropriate responses uh, regarding concerns of an uh, unstable market situation, as this is expected to continue for a while. That's right. Uh, very quickly, Patrick Pierce, when we're talking about taxis, uh, what about autonomous pods for assisting the taxis? Like, you mean the number of taxis? Uh, I, I know they're looking at, uh, what is it, uh, AI cabs and uh, autonomous taxis and stuff like that. I, I think they're still working on it, but we don't have, like, those autonomous pods. I don't know if you guys have that, like, in Europe or anything like that. But the biggest problem is even if they go with, like, autonomous driving cabs in the future, I feel like there's going to be a huge uproar amongst, like, the union. Like, the, the taxi unions, like, I mean... Let's just say they're very vocal. Mm. Uh, they're going to say it's going to start chanting. They're taking our jobs, and uh, there's going to be a lot of protests go- uh, going on with this. So there's some limitations with that. But I do understand right now uh, the country is working on these autonomous uh, taxi cabs uh, at this time. Uh, guys, let's talk about the Inflation Reduction Act. Of course, it's not Korea now. If we're not going to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act and the impact it has on South Korean companies because uh, the impacts of the IRA on the South Korean automobile companies we're seeing this happen right now it's being reflected because we are seeing south korean automakers and their evs uh, see a reduction in their car sales uh in the recent months ever since the ira was sound- signed into law back in august here Ji, you have the details of this right so recent company data revealed that hyundai motor and kia kia uh, major automakers of south korea saw their electric vehicle sales in the united states dip in september from a month earlier uh, and this is amid worries over the potential impact of the IRA. Uh, as we know, it's a new U.S. law that disadvantages EV makers that do not 
manufacture the vehicles in America. Now, according to Hyundai Motor America, the U.S. sales unit of the South Korean Auto Group, uh, the company sold 1,306 Ionic 5 EVs, its major EV model, last month. Uh, and this was down 14% from a month earlier. And its smaller affiliate, Kia, sold 1,440 units of the EV6 model. And this was also a 22% shrink from the August sale. Uh, and the July sales of these vehicles were also relatively higher than the sales of September. And the on-month sales decline came amid increasing worries, like I said, because of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which was signed by President Joe Biden in August. And this uh, gives up to $7,500 in tax credits to buyers of EVs that, the, that were uh, assembled only in North America. And the new law raised concerns uh, within South Korea that it could cause a heavy blow to Hyundai Motor as well as Kia, the two major South Korean automakers uh, that have both been ramping up their sales expansion in the U.S. Uh, market. And uh, both Hyundai and Kia make their electric vehicles at domestic plants for export to the U.S., and regarding this matter, South Korea has been making all-out efforts on the government and business fronts uh, to make sure that we receive exemptions for Korean-made EVs, uh, saying that the clauses will discriminate against Korean companies and also arguing that it's a violation of the FTA between the two states, uh, but that those efforts have not really been showing much positive results. And Hyundai Motor is, in fact, building an EV plant in Georgia, but the production there won't begin until 2025. Yeah. So we won't really see effects uh, regarding that. Yeah, which is why the yeah. companies have uh, requested for a three-year grace mm. period, right? They're basically saying, listen, it's not that we're not creating plants here. We've promised to create a plant. We're building it, but it's not like, you know, we go, poof, magic. Uh, we'll create a plant right now mm. and poof, it, it appears out of nowhere. It just needs time for them to, uh, of course, uh, build these plants. But uh, it really is a shame because right now, from what I understand, Ionic 5 and like the EV6 that uh, Kia uh, creates has been very popular. It's been getting very, very good ratings uh, amongst the U.S car rating companies and things like that but it's uh, certainly people it's seven thousand five hundred dollars that, that's a lot of money right you could certainly a lot of money that you can save and especially because at the economic state right now uh that's a big chunk uh k says there's big concerns over credit swiss we could cause further ripples in the market um yeah i think some people are concerned that it might be like the the lehman, lehman brother situation back in uh, was it 2008 i believe uh th that caused a huge ripple uh, effect on the market there. Uh, CamCam413, oh, you're listening to our show here. Uh, good to see you once again. We have Waymo in San Francisco for the self-driving cars. Yeah, it's different. It's not that we don't have the technology. I think there's also the legal aspect here in South Korea. And again, the, the taxi union, they're going to be very much against these self-driving cars, basically saying you're taking our jobs and things like that. And there's protests that happen all the time because of this. Uh, nevertheless, guys, thank you very much for your report today. Please stay safe and uh, we'll see you guys again. See you. See you. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.